Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. People want to believe in something. They want to be part of something greater than themselves. They want their time on this planet to have meant something. And if we can give them a sense of something greater than themselves, then we'll unlock partnership. Then we'll unlock investment. Welcome back to episode 34 of What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. In today's episode, I'm interviewing Rhea Wong. Rhea has 20 years of experience in the nonprofit sector, fundraising herself, and now coaching executive directors and development directors to create amazing major gift programs. Rhea and I have a lot in common in terms of our early leadership inside the sector and the way our beliefs about money, especially in our early years, held us back from being the fundraisers we wanted to be. We unpack some of our own stories and dismantle some of the most common biases inside the fundraisers mindset and our sector as a whole. When it comes to money, value, and even rejection, Rhea has some interesting takeaways to help you challenge your pre-established money beliefs, ask the right questions to nurture your relationships with partners, and change the way you show up as a fundraiser immediately. You're going to see that we speak the same language around fundraising mindset. So let's jump in right to the heart of it. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Rhea Wong. We are going to talk all about money and mindset, two of our favorite topics. And you might even get a little uncomfortable in your chairs, but it's going to be okay because these are some of the most critical things for you to be thinking about and considering and just have awareness around as you're going into really any type of fundraising activity. Rhea, thank you for joining me here today. Mallory, it is such a pleasure. We're going to have so much fun. So let's just start with you giving a little background around what brings you to this moment in time. What's your story around nonprofit and tell us a little bit about the work you do now. Yeah, for sure. So I tell the story all the time, but I was a 26-year-old executive director in New York City running a small educational nonprofit and very similar to, I think, a lot of EDs. It was like, okay, good luck. Here's your email. Here are the keys. Bye. And I was like, what? But of course I was 26. I was like, I know everything. Not more than Google. So I Googled two things my first day. Number one, what does an executive director do? (laughs) And number two, how to fundraise. So I was like, I don't know. And I think a big problem in our industry is that we ask people to do these things without giving them proper training to do the thing. But of course, being 26, I had no idea that was probably not the best way to do things. So I was like, I'm smart. I'll figure it out. So 12 and a half years later, I built the organization up to just a little bit under $3 million in private philanthropy. And I just felt like, ah, why did it take me 12 years to figure that out? I'm smart. It really should have been faster. And so what I 
done now is I, I left an organization at the end of 2017. I've pivoted and I, very similar to you, now teach people how to fundraise, particularly with high net worth individuals, because I think we all have so much stuff about money. And we can't fund our organizations if we don't know how to ask the right people for the money to do the thing that we need to do in the world. So that's what I do. And so I have a fundraising accelerator, which is a group coaching program where I work with small cohorts to help them raise money. I love it. Did you have over the course of your journey, a moment or a series of moments where you were like, wow, maybe this is about more than I think it is. Oh my God, Mallory, I'm so glad you asked this question. I tell this story (laughs) all the time. Okay, so here it is. So I never really loved fundraising for you know, the first half of my ED ship, I just felt like it was a necessary evil what I have to do, but I always dreaded it as like, you know, I know I have to do it, but I don't love it. And actually that's why for a really long time, the biggest chunk of my budget was foundations. Cause I was like institutional funders. I can talk to them. Like I can talk to program officers whose job it is to give me money. I had a really hard time talking to people about their own personal philanthropic gifts. Then I did this training with Jennifer McCray. So I'm going to name check her. And I just unpacked all this stuff about money, which is I grew up in San Francisco, which is I know where you are now. And 80s and 90s, it was the height of the AIDS and crack epidemics. And so I just grew up seeing people who were living on the streets, homeless. And I was eight or nine years old. And I remember walking past this older man, hair, hanging in his eyes. He was gone and he had a little sign that said, homeless vet, please help. And I reached into my pocket and I gave him a quarter and my father whipped around and he was like, oh, so you have so much money now, you can just give it away? And when you're a kid, you're like, I'm in trouble. I don't know why I'm in trouble, but I'm in trouble. I'm experiencing like shame and, and this feeling of being bad. And on reflection, I realized that I was carrying all this baggage in my family about money because my grandparents had been immigrants from China, classic American tale. You know, we showed up with $20 in our pockets and they made good in America. But in my family, money was never just about money. It was about survival. It was about stability. And even though I grew up in a middle-class family, there was always this sense that we were like one step, like one mistake, one move away from being homeless or eating out of the garbage can, which is not empirically true, but I think it was that scarcity mindset. And so fast forward to being a fundraiser, somehow deep down in my DNA, that psychological connection was that by asking people to support my organization, I was somehow subconsciously asking them to give up their stability and to experience the shame that I had experienced when I first gave money away. And so I think so much of the feelings and the stuff that we have about money has to do with the stuff that we hear growing up. Like in my family, it was who do you think we are? The Rockefellers are like, oh, that's for rich people or we can't afford that. The stuff that we saw, the stuff that we experienced, I definitely saw my parents fighting about money when I was a kid. So of course, like psychologically, money equaled conflict. And then coming to this realization of, wait a second, hold on, maybe this is just like my issue. Like maybe not everybody thinks about money the way I think about money. And so that was a real eye-opener. And ever since then, I've actually really, it is still a challenge, right? Like we have to be intentional about the things that we think, but it really freed me from this feeling of, oh, I shouldn't ask people for money because I'm asking them to give up something. Instead, I've really shifted to, 
when I ask people to give, I'm inviting them to be part of something. And that's, it's about giving, not about extracting. Wow. I love that. And I feel like there's so many pieces that we could touch on there. And I relate to a lot of the family story components too. And I'm sure that it's interesting. Something you made me wonder about is I feel like a lot of us do have similar, perhaps money stories that are triggered then when we're asking for money, but are not necessarily triggered when we're being asked for money. And so what's the relationship between the fundraisers experience when they do have those maybe unconscious or unexamined beliefs rooted in scarcity? What's the disconnect between what's happening in their mind and their belief systems versus the donors? Because I feel like one of the things that people sometimes will say is, I have money beliefs like this. Don't my donors have money beliefs like this too? So aren't I going to trigger all of that as well, when I'm bringing up the topic of money that's so loaded in all these ways, what would you say to that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. A couple of things. Yes, I think donors potentially have stuff about money as well. But I think that there's an interesting difference between what I feel like when people ask me for a gift and what I feel like when I ask people for a gift. When I'm asked for a gift, I'm usually flattered. Even if I can't give that much, I'm like, oh, thanks for thinking of me. Or even if I don't give, it's usually because this is just not my cause and I'm investing in this area. But I never feel offended that you would ask. And so conversely, like, why would I then assume that other people would feel offended if I asked? And I also think if people are offended because you asked, A, you probably didn't set it up the right way. Or B, they probably were never going to give to you anyway. I don't know. Like, what do you think? Are you ever offended to be asked for a gift? No, never, never. I just think it's so interesting how we have these money stories that, yes, I've spent the last 10 years working through mine. doesn't mean they're never triggered, that I don't have to be conscious of them. But just as you were talking, I was thinking about the fact that, wow, they are never triggered for me when I'm asked for money. So there's something about this combination of money and perhaps a situation where it feels like we could be rejected or shamed or being made to feel that we're bad, that we did something wrong. I feel like might all be baked into the risk of rejection. And it's like, is it that combo that makes it so scary? Yeah, I think so much of what happens with money and fundraising is really the risk of rejection. And especially if you like are a founder, it is so personal (laughs) because it like literally is your organization. But I also think that we can't take it so personally. If someone is saying that they don't want to donate to you, it's not about you. It's about them. It's them saying this is not their thing and that's okay. And Conversely, like you're not asking for money for your own personal travel fund. I'm not asking them to buy my house. I'm asking them if they want to be invited to a party. I just think of it, I think we have to lower the stakes a little bit and be like, look, you are setting a table and you are inviting people to a party. And some people will not want to come to your party. And that's okay. It doesn't mean it's a bad party. It just means this is not the kind of party they want to be at. It's okay. There are lots of other people who want to be at the party. And I feel part of it is that we fixate so much on the people who don't want to come to the party that we forget (laughs) about the people who are at the party or want to be at the party. And how do we make that party fun for them? Okay, I love that. And I'm curious, 
in your work, how do you coach or support people around more people pleasing or perfectionist elements where it really is, we really want everyone to like us? Yeah, I don't know that I do it that effectively because I don't have that perfectionistic affliction. That's one of the many burdens I was not. But I just point out the fact that not everybody is going to like you. And I'm sorry that that, (laughs) if that is news to you, I am sorry to break it to you that you somehow (laughs) got out of kindergarten and realized that everyone looks into me your best friend. But even when we think about what are some of the biggest companies in the world? Let's say Apple. Not everybody loves Apple. Apple has a whole lot more money than you do to spend on advertising and marketing and all the things. So if Apple doesn't get all of the people in all of the world to love their products, what are the chances that you will? There's literally not a single thing on this planet that everybody is for, except maybe breathing air and drinking water. Other than that, (laughs) I have a hard time thinking about something that we can all agree on, particularly now in these very divisive times. There's an article called A Thousand True Fans. And it's that in order to really make a living or make an organization, all you really need are a thousand true fans. There are like 6 billion people on this planet. You're telling me you can't find a thousand people who are going to be true fans who are going to open all of your emails and come to all your events and donate every time you ask, I'm pretty sure you can find a thousand of them. I love that. And I've been thinking in the nonprofit sector, we are much more obsessed with everybody liking us than in other sectors or in other work where so much more attention gets focused on finding the right people. What's your company's avatar? Because we believe so deeply in our own cause and we so desperately, I think, want everyone to believe in our cause too. We do not do a very good job getting really specific about who are our people and what does that mean? And then how does that dictate and drive our work in ways that are a lot more efficient and effective? And so it's really this interesting thing that you're talking about, which is one, I think, yes, accepting that, we shouldn't, in fact, be liked by everyone. And I would argue that with change work in particular, if you are trying to be a people pleaser and shift something in society that is not the status quo, that feels like an oxymoron to me. Yeah, there's a phrase I read once that I thought was great, which is good marketing attracts, great marketing repels, right? So what we really want to do is repel the people for whom this is not going to be their thing. And I think the impulse for everybody to like me means that we're moving to the middle. It's almost like we're afraid to claim an edge because we're afraid we're going to offend someone or afraid someone will get turned off. And so what that means is that we then get really comfortable with beige. I have never walked into a room And been like, you know, what would make this room awesome is if it were like completely beige, totally non-offensive and beige. People don't remember and remark on beige. They remark on things that are remarkable. And I think as an industry, we need to have the courage to claim an edge and also to be efficient. Because look, if you are trying to market to everybody, then you're marketing to nobody. So if you have a limited amount of money and time and energy, then I would say focus and really go deep as opposed to broad because the depth is where your people are going to be. Yes. I'm curious. I know you do so much mindset work in the accelerator and in your work in general. What are some of the patterns that you see when fundraisers come into your program? Some of the fundraising mindset patterns or inner barriers that you feel like, okay, if fundraisers are going to have some awareness around three things, 
what would they be? Yeah, really good question. So the first I think is this belief of scarcity and like a, a zero sum game. If that organization gets funded, that means that there's less for me. First of all, I think this notion of finite resources is a myth in the sense that literally they're printing money as we speak. And we are living in the richest time in human history. And we're living in a time where capital can literally get moved around at the click of a button. So you can't tell me that there's no money out there. Now, it could be that you are not offering the right thing to the right people at the right time. That's a different problem. But it's not the problem of there's not enough out there. There is more than enough out there to fund your organization. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is, I'm sure you get this all the time. We don't know any rich people. Why don't we just call Oprah slash Jeff Bezos slash we should call those people. I'm like, okay, number one, unless you for real know them, they're on your speed dial, you're not going to get them. But also I think it's a proxy and especially for board members to avoid fundraising because to go back to it, like when you really break down the numbers, you don't need a billionaire. You need a couple of people, maybe 20 people who could write you a $10,000 check. And when we look at global wealth, there are like 56 million millionaires in this world, most of whom reside in the U.S., So I think a lot of times we sleep on the potential because we're just like, oh, Mark Zuckerberg, right? The truth is you probably live next door to a millionaire. Yeah, I said on a webinar recently that I think we'd all hit our budget goals if we just had a dollar for every time a board member told us to go to the Gates Foundation. (laughs) Oh my God. Or I remember once when I first started, I had a board member say like, you know, if everybody in New York just gave us a dollar, I was like, do you know everybody in New York? Do you? Because if you do, then like, please, by all means, call everyone up and ask them for a dollar. Yeah. Thrill it. And then the third, yeah, I think the third is really just about the stories that we tell ourselves about money. It goes back to this idea of like, what were we raised with? Because I think a lot of us have disempowering stories and we are not even aware of it. And we just assume that other people have the same story. So I think it's worthwhile to take a step back and be like, huh, what are the things I think? Like, what did I hear growing up? Or what did I see growing up? Or what did I experience? Like, what are my emotional moments? Because our memories are filled by emotion, right? And, you know, if you, in my case, like saw your parents fighting, the emotion that I have is like anxiety and, oh my gosh, like money is bad because look at my parents are in conflict. So I think being really conscious and intentional about first understanding what your story is and then be changing that story. Because I think part of it is about energy. I know it's like very woo-woo, but it's about energy. I talk about this all the time. You know, like how when you were dating and single and like couldn't catch a date to save your life. And then the minute you're in a relationship, everyone wants your number. And you're like, where were you when I was (laughs) single? Because you're just putting out a different energy. And I think we have to realize that works with fundraising too. Totally. And it's so funny. Energy does have this, like, I think woo assumption in it, but it's obviously something I talk about a lot, given that my coach training is around energy leadership. And I think what you're saying is so important, which is like energy attracts energy and we can always feel energy. You know, when someone's mad at you before they've said they're mad at you, how? energy. And so I think it is so critical that we're thinking about that and that we recognize that our energy is so deeply 
connected to our thoughts and our beliefs and how we feel. And we can't just show up the sort of toxic positivity stuff we see around just be positive or be courageous or all these things. If you don't feel positive because you're holding a belief around that zero-sum game or scarcity mindset, you're going to keep finding yourself hitting up against that wall unless you actually really examine the underlying belief that's related to then all those layers around how you feel and how you show up. Mm-hmm. 100%. And so interesting is I, I recently spoke to a woman who, I think she she definitely had a chip on her shoulder about fundraising. She started the conversation off with like, I hate fundraising. I was like, okay, well, this is gonna be interesting. <laughs> and then <laughs> proceeded to tell me all of the ways in which she was resentful of her friends and family who only donated $50. Like that, like, what did that mean? And I was just like, I didn't have enough of a relationship to tell her that actually it's your vibe that's really... <laughs> Tamping down the mood, dude. Nobody <laughs> wants to be around the negative Nancy. And again, it's not false positivity, but people want to believe in something. They want to be part of something greater than themselves. They want their time on this planet to have meant something. And if we can give them a sense of something greater than themselves, then we'll unlock partnership. Then we'll unlock investment in a deep way, as opposed to, I call it hit it and quit it fundraising. But it, it's just so antithetical to everything I believe about how you fundraise because I think it's about relationship and it's about marrying the interest of your donor with the work of your organization and also blessing and releasing, right? Because not every person is going to be your person. And I think we get so obsessed, but then I like, need to get that gift. But why? They've told you that this is not their thing. Let it go. It's fine. Oh my gosh. Okay. There's so much about what you just said that I think is so critical. One, the hit it and quit it. I always call that favor fundraising. It's either a favor to decrease the anxiety in the moment, the awkwardness in the moment. It's a favor that your friend or family member asked you to do. And that it's interesting because when we talk about donor retention and and we talk about the low donor retention numbers that so many organizations see, and it often gets focused on the activities that we're not doing to follow up with donors and the phone calls we're not making. I'm not saying that there aren't tons of missed opportunities there, but I also think, and I'm curious what you think about this, that actually part of the reason for our super low donor retention rates is that we have not done the alignment work first. And so we've gotten this hit it or quit it. We've gotten this favor. We've gotten this one time thing. And we've been so focused on that instead of, are we truly aligned? is this the right partner for us? That then we lose them, not just because we haven't done all these great stewardship strategies, but because they were actually never our people, but they got talked into it one time. Yeah. So I think when we think about the donor journey, first of all, identification, cultivation, right? Like, are we even talking to the right people? Are we cultivating them in such a way that it's not just about building commitment on their part, but building commitment on our part too? Is this the right person for us? Not every person you go on a date with means that you're going to get married. You got to date and see if you see the world the same way. But I also think to your point, we do a terrible job of stewardship. And if the only thing that anybody ever did was just focus on their stewardship, I think (laughs) your donation rates would get much better. Because as we know, it's much cheaper to keep a donor than it is to get a new donor. And I think part of it is that we, we're not, I don't want to like paint too broad a brush here, but I will. We're not good partners. And so I think when you're a good partner, you're clued into the needs of your partner. 
What do they need? What do they want? You don't take your spouse out once a year on the anniversary and ignore them other 364 days of the year, you continue to invest in the relationship. And I always think about Danny Meyer, who's a restaurateur here in New York. He says, imagine everyone is walking around with an invisible sign around their neck that says, make me feel special. We all just want to feel special to someone. We want to matter to somebody. So yes, double clicking on all the things, which is yes, there are some people who are actually truly not in it for the right reasons. And to me, I actually don't consider it a donor until the second gift. I love that. What's so interesting about you saying that is that, so having that frame of reference, how much does that shift fundraisers behavior getting the first donation? If you don't count it till the second one with organizations that you work with or however this plays into your work, how does that framework mindset shift actually adjust the activities that the fundraiser takes in getting the first donation too? Yeah, so- I will say that it doesn't count as the second gift. It was just for myself. It's not necessarily I impose on my clients, but I do think it changes the way that you think about things. If you're like, I'm in it to get married, like I'm in it for the long haul, I'm in it for a relationship, then how might that change the way that you approach it? And I think a big part of it is, I think as fundraisers and as nonprofits, we talk too much. We're just throwing tennis balls into a vacuum cleaner. And we're like, why aren't people responding to us? Because we're not actually asking questions and we need to be in conversation, not in monologue. And, And I think when we're in conversation, that's when we learn, what does our donor need? What do they care about? How are they the hero of their own story? Because ultimately like, we're all the heroes of our own story. We have our life movie and we are the stars. And so how am I as a fundraiser helping you to further that story that you're telling yourself about who you are and what your destiny is? And I think recently I've been getting a lot of pushback on this from community-centric fundraising practitioners. With community-centric fundraising, I think there is a real reaction against the donor as the hero, right? Like the white savior complex. We should not be putting the donor at the center of our story. I think... People who are coming to work as community members and volunteers and board members should also be heroes. At the end of the day, again, I think of it like a party. It's like a potluck, right? We're all bringing a dish and all of the dishes make up the whole. And everyone's dish is important because no one wants to sit there with all the desserts and none of the mains. But I think we also have to recognize that people want to feel special. And it's not a bad thing that people want to feel special. It's just a human desire to want to feel special. I really like that you're bringing this up because this is something you and I have talked about before. And I actually think it hits on this really critical element that there isn't enough conversation around, which is community-centric fundraising principles have a lot of really important concepts for us to be considering as we think about equity and justice and what it means to be including everyone at the table. And so there are so many really important lessons, I think, to learn from those principles. And there are certain things that I've also heard from community-centric fundraising that sometimes conflict with the neuroscience of behavior. And I've often sat there thinking, okay, what is the solution here? because we know why people behave certain ways. We know how habits are formed. We know what hormones and chemicals need to be released in the brain in order for someone to become a multi-year donor. It's different chemicals at different times. So the neuroscience around this has really been studied. 
what's the place that we can find that can combine those pieces? And I think what's interesting about the way you use the word hero that I'm thinking about right now is the hero of their own story. So not the savior of the organization, not the savior of a group of people, but if we take certain action based on how chemicals fire in our brains and we have found alignment with someone who is inclined to want those chemicals to fire for us, how and why could we miss that opportunity if it's really based on that alignment and it allows us to do this great work together? Yeah, I do think community-centric fundraising does have a lot of really important things to say about reimagining the ways in which the sector has traditionally related to donors. And I think we need to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't need to throw all of the good stuff out with the bad stuff. I think there's a lot about power and privilege and hierarchy and the ways in which it's been used in philanthropy and who gets a say at the table and who doesn't. I think all of that stuff is definitely things that we should be questioning. I Parts, though, I think are really effective and are backed up by science. And I'm a big proponent of data and science, which really should not be a controversial thing to say, but these days maybe, which is... Like we've seen brain scans. We know when people's brains react to positive influence and positive reinforcement. And again, to your point, we're all just trying to be heroes of our own story. So how are we as fundraisers becoming the, if you will, to help our donors and our volunteers and our clients and our board members and our staff members to be the heroes of their stories? First Tea of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tea of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tea of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Yeah, I think it's something I feel like I'm grappling with or thinking through and trying to think critically about all of the different actions. I think the point you make around what are the historical behaviors or assumptions we've been making inside the sector that community-centric fundraising is disrupting in a really positive way? And then how do we continue to look at the fundraising practices that are really proven to be incredibly beneficial and just look at both of them and believe, and I think this is where you and I really align in so many ways, that there's a gray, that it isn't an either or. There's something here that's a both and we need to watch out for where harm is being caused. But like you said, we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. One of the things I have been thinking about is exactly to your point about the use of yes and. Like, yes, I would love to live in a perfect utopia world where everybody got along and had exactly all of the things that they needed to thrive and recognizing that we're not there yet. And so how do we bring the resources that we need in order to create a world that is more just and is is more equitable? And someone brought this up to me, which I thought was great, which is the messy middle. And it's like, look, we're in the messy middle right now between the way things 
were and the way things we want them to be. And there's just stuff that we're going to figure out along the way. Yeah. And maybe when we're too binary like that, we also miss the opportunity to inspire a much higher level of generosity that is in that messy middle, that it's not just either or. And I think I also just do not see our sector as a zero sum game, but especially in our sector in terms of the size of the market. I'm just like, this is dependent on how much money we can move and inspire people to invest and feel aligned and identified with our missions and our work. And there it isn't ever with this sort of this or that. When I've talked to funders, it's so rarely this or that organization. And I think we do make so many assumptions around it. Oftentimes, because I feel like the way that foundation funding is given creates this entire narrative for the sector around a lot of different things. And yet the way that happens and the pools of money that that represents are actually such a small portion of what's actually possible. Totally. Yeah, I I think that's right. Because I also think it's predicated on this idea of there's only X amount available, right? And so it creates this competitive landscape where you're competing with the other organization to get this money. And the truth is there's a lot more money to be had. And relative to all of the philanthropic dollars given, most of it's given by individuals. So I think we really need to shift our focus as fundraisers to really think about how are we actually talking to the groups of people that actually move the most capital on a yearly basis? It's people. You said way at the beginning around your own experience and having an outsized amount of foundation funding because of having more comfort talking to institutional donors versus individuals. I feel like that is a sector-wide problem and not just you were actually getting the funding in that way, which is awesome. But when I look at fundraisers' time being spent, there's a tremendous amount of time being invested in foundation fundraising with a very low ROI, but continuing to focus on it because applying cold to these grants lets us check a box that we're fundraising, but we have a 0.2% chance of actually getting that money. Yeah. Mallory, I don't know if this has been your experience, but I'm always really surprised at people who call themselves fundraisers who don't actually ask for money. And I think, actually, it's funny, I wrote a blog piece about this today, which is, I think we could do a lot of busy work, right? We can be like, I'm cleaning up my database and I'm doing prospect research and I'm looking at my moves management and I'm working on the newsletter and all the things that have nothing to do with asking for money. (laughs) And I'm not saying those things aren't important. They are important. But of all of those activities, the most important is actually going out and talking to people and asking for money. Many fundraisers don't give themselves enough at-bats to get good at it. So they will do a couple. And it's one of these things where people, I think, just think that you're either good at it or you're not. You're either tall or you're not. It's a skill like anything else and you learn it over time and you learn it by doing and you learn it by screwing up a couple of times. And I think people are so afraid because we've made money mean so much and the stakes are so high. And look, I get it. You have to bring in money in to pay the bills. But when our standard of expectation is perfection, (laughs) of course, you're not going to do it. Of course, it's going to feel anxiety inducing because... I've never done a perfect ask. 
No, it's so interesting. I don't know what your experience has been like starting to build and run your own business, but being in the for-profit space and learning about sort of conversion rates or things like that, I've just been so blown away people celebrating a 10% conversion rate on a webinar or something. Oh, you blew it out of the park. And I'm like, gosh, if this was a fundraising thing, we would be hyper-focused on the 90% of people I didn't close and why, and they don't like me and all this stuff. And it just, there are these fundamental mindset building blocks that are upside down in our sector that then lead us, I think, to doing exactly what you're saying, distracting ourselves with a ton of tasks because they give us a feeling of satisfaction and accomplishment instead of the discomfort that comes from asking for money. But if we actually take that step back and we're like, what's going to help you achieve your goals? We'd be doing very different things. Yeah. And the other thing is too, let me reframe it because I actually don't think it's even about asking for money. It's about building a relationship. And so it's, again, I love a dating analogy, but it's like, if you've done it right, by the time you ask for a gift, you will have built up to it. It's like asking someone to marry you. It shouldn't be a surprise. Like it should be, you should know what's coming. And I think part of it is our anxiety about it. Part of it is I also think that people aren't given enough time to really nurture relationships too. Because I think they're under such pressure to deliver that they get into transactional fundraising. We're like, okay, I need to hit all these targets and blah, blah, blah. And I need to turn them over. But I don't know, you might get a gift, but it's not a recipe for long-term success. Like you're trying to actually develop a relationship and that doesn't happen under a time crunch. Hmm. Okay. So I want to talk to you about this because I'm really curious what you think about this. So we hear that word a lot in our sector, transactional, right? And we're like, don't be transactional, be focused on the relationship, even though people of course behave in all the ways that you just described plenty of time when they're feeling desperate. And that goes back to the like energy attracts like energy. Everyone can feel that energy, but there is this piece to me around the word transactional that I'm curious how you think about it. So My perception is that a lot of people take the word transactional to mean talking about money transparently. And so when they think about don't be transactional, they're like, don't talk about money. And I'll get questions all the time, like at what point in the relationship can you talk about money? And so I'm thinking about your dating analogy, which I love which is when you're going on dates or you're on a website, you're being transparent about what you're there for. Nobody thinks you're on that dating website to find someone to mow your lawn. That would be super confusing. If you like went on match.com and you were like, oh no, I really just wanted you to mow my lawn. Like everyone would feel really deceived and uncomfortable about that thing. So there's this baseline understanding around like why you're both there. And then within the framework of that, the relationship is built, but still with transparency around where the hope that it might go if it continues to be aligned. And I feel one of the big mistakes that fundraisers make is they are not transparent at the beginning at all. They pretend it's about just advice on something, or it's just about some other thing. And then they find themselves 12 or 18 months down the line trying to make an ask. And there's been this really big disconnect. And they're like, oh, I put all this time into this relationship, but it was built under false pretenses a little bit. So I'm curious what you think about that. Do you feel like I'm totally off base? No. Oh my God. It's like you're singing my song. I'm like, I, <laughs> I have been there, dude. I have been there and got into the friend zone with people. And then it got weird because I, I was, like didn't set it up in the beginning. It's tough. But I also think when I think about the word transactional, I think about it 
to me, transactional is not about talking about money. Transactional is not about being transparent about why you're there. Transactional is exactly your point. Maybe we could even say deceptive, right? Pretending to be one thing when you actually want another. When you're like, I want your advice, but actually really want to see if you want to support this organization. Or I hear this lot like, oh, we're going to have to go beg for money or we're going to have to twist some arms or we're going to have to put the screws to them. So when you start treating people like they're walking checkbooks, that's what I mean by transactional. We can invite people to support a cause. We also have to look at them as the full person. Like, why would you support this cause over this cause? What about this cause is aligned for you as an individual? How does this align with your story of yourself as a hero of your personal life story? And if all of these things align, let's take it to this next level. But we can't do that if all we think is, oh, that person, I'm going to hit them up for money. I'm going to say the thing that they're going to want to hear to get that check. Yeah. I think what you're saying is so important. And I love that earlier in this episode, you called out how many millionaires there are in the world and most of those living in the US, because I feel like one of the things we hear often is with board members, open up your Rolodex. And when I hear people say that, I hear, who do you know who has money? And I watch so many board conversations happen without really focusing on who do you know who's trying to do something similar to what we do here or who really cares about seeing change in the community the way that we're talking about with X program. It's always who do you know who has money? And maybe in your experience or the way you really coach around the high net worth individuals, that still is where you start and then you go to alignment next. But I'm curious about that because I feel like sometimes when I watch clients get hyper-focused on that, they really lose the alignment piece. Yeah. And the tricky thing about it, Mallory, is I feel like a lot of people don't know. What's interesting is with our friends and family, like how often do you ever really talk about deep things of consequence? It's usually like, hey, how's it going? What's happening? Blah, blah, blah. Went to this movie, whatever it may be. How often do we engage with our friends about deep questions of values and purpose? And so I love the question about who of in your circle might be working on this. The truth is most people probably don't know. So I would say, I'd like to start in a more general term, like who of your friends might be interested in educational causes? Because you're not actually ever going to find deep alignment until you have the conversation. So for me, it's like a, to use a for-profit term, like the pipeline, like the funnel, like the winnowing effect. Let's start with the whitest possible funnel here. And then as we are able to have conversations, we disqualify people out of the funnel. But really the goal is to have the conversation because I won't know until I have a conversation and ask you, what's your thing? What are you into? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like board members are more willing to hand over lists or participate in this process when they really trust that the fundraiser is going to disqualify people who aren't aligned? So here, so many things to say about boards. So the first thing I will say about boards is I think a lot of boards also have baggage about money. And so I think we make the assumption that just because you have money, it means that you don't have baggage about money. Untrue. We all have baggage about money. So that's thing one. Thing two is I think a lot of board members have been subject to bad fundraising. And by that, I mean, hit it and quit it fundraising. So I think the reluctance that a lot of board members have to opening their Rolodex or making introductions is thinking that, oh, you want me to hand over my list so you can hit up all my friends for money, which look, 
probably has been true in some cases. So I don't blame them for that. So I think part of it is education too around what is it that I, I intend to do? If I am going to be respectful of your list and all I'm telling you that I'm going to do is ask to have a coffee, to have a conversation. And in the course of that conversation, if that person is like, yeah, this is not really my thing, then I will gently bless and release them. <laughs> Look, the last thing anybody wants is to make it weird. I get it. Somebody called up a bunch of my friends and family and asked them for money and they came back at me and they're like, Rhea, it was super weird. They like just asked me for a big check out of nowhere. I would be really upset about that too. So I think part of it is being clear with your intentions and clear about the process and helping them to understand what it is you actually will do with these names. Yeah. As you're doing work with fundraisers around their beliefs and what's behind their discomfort, how often do you recommend that they talk about those topics more openly with their staff and their board? Oh, all the time. It's so interesting. Literally after we do that money mindset training, everyone is like, I'm going to talk about this with my board. I'm going to talk about this with my staff. Because I think it's so weird. Like we never talk about money in a really transparent way. And yet it's this undercurrent of everything that we do and all of the decisions that we make. Before I used to be in this really, the scarcity mindset. And I was like, okay, we're going to look at the budget and we're going to just like increase it by 3% because I think that's all we're going to be able to raise. So we think about it in terms of, can I hire this person as cheaply as possible versus what is the value that this person might bring to the organization? And how can we compensate them? So it just shifts the whole way that you think about the world. Okay, I could talk to you forever. We're gonna have another opportunity on Thursday on your podcast, The Nonprofit Lowdown, which I'm so excited about. So for now, tell folks how they can find you. How can they work with you? And then I invite folks to highlight a nonprofit that they love at the end if you want to. Although I know for folks who are working with clients and in the sector, that can always get stickier. So we can pass on that one too. So I'm at riawong.com, R-H-E-A-W-O-N-G. I have the fundraising accelerator. So applications are open. So if you want to do a deep dive with a group coaching program and really talk about all the things that will help you to be a major gift fundraiser, that is the program for you. I actually do have a book coming out at the end of March. So I'll make sure to get you a copy, Mallory. And my favorite nonprofit. So I don't know this shameless plug, but I am working right now with a group called Earth Species Project, and they use AI to decode non-human language. Whoa. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And the hope is within a couple of years, we'll be able to have the first human animal translations. And they have data sets from humpback whales and monkeys and dolphins and birds. And the dream of being a Dr. Doolittle and being able to communicate with animals might be one day possible. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. Okay, we will include links to everything. And once you have the book too, we'll update the page and the show notes and everything. I'm very excited to read that. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was my pandemic project. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And thank you for joining me today and for this amazing conversation. Thank you, it was so fun. When I meet someone like Rhea, I am filled with excitement and hope that we really can change the narratives in this sector. I hope you're going to be joining us on Thursday, February 24th on Rhea's podcast, The Nonprofit Lowdown. 
We're gonna be continuing this conversation there and we can't wait to have you. But until then, here are some of the takeaways I wanna make sure you grab from this episode. First, fundraising is about giving, not about extracting. Good fundraising is about more than just asking for money. We provide an opportunity to make a difference and create positive impact. If someone is saying that they don't want to donate to your organization, it has nothing to do with you. The second is that good marketing attracts. Great marketing propels. As an industry, we need to have the courage to claim an edge and make sure to find the people out there that are willing to join us. The third thing I want you to take away is that like energy attracts like energy. Energy is often seen as this supernatural concept that's hard to understand, but it's actually the way in which your thoughts, beliefs, and emotions are perceived. If you want to attract donors with the right energy, you need to be showing up with that energy too. I also want you to think about how we can combine the values of community-centric fundraising with practices backed by neuroscience. There is a lot of conflict inside our sector right now in terms of community-centric versus donor-centric fundraising. It's critical that we address harmful fundraising practices like donor saviorism and centering donors in the work of the organization itself. And we need to learn how to take the science of fundraising and align it with community-centric fundraising pillars. The last takeaway I don't want you to walk away without is around transparency. When we continue to struggle with the fear of rejection or we're just being transactional, we tend not to be clear about what we're really looking for in partnership. Transparency will always save you time and energy. All right, there is so much more where this came from. So head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to get all of the show notes right now. You'll also find more information there about Rhea and how to connect with her. And you should definitely check out her book, Get That Money, Honey, and her amazing accelerator program. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners, especially you, and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.